All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City here on the seventh day of November 2017. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York City, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours uh, in New York City. I would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter by going to chenpicks.com. Chen has done a remarkable job uh, in building wealth for his family and for uh, his subscribers. Uh, and uh, he has some very interesting things. He was here with us last week to talk about Sorrento uh, Therapeutics. It's a company that I've learned to know something about. Very exciting story. I expect to have Chen on once in a while to keep us updated on that. But you can keep up to date with Chen by subscribing. Go to ChenPicks.com. Again, uh, you can subscribe to my letter, MiningStocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. I've titled today's show, Are Russia and China Better Off Financially Than the United States? Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff returns today, as does Michael Oliver, and uh, he will be with, Professor Kotlikoff will be at, with me at about half past the hour, and Michael will be with me after the first commercial break in a few minutes from now. Dr. Kotlikoff recently opined that given $200 trillion of U.S. national debt that is on balance sheet and off, the U.S. is in worse financial shape than Russia and China, or most developed nations for that matter. Unlike most proponents of fiscal rectitude, Professor Kotlikoff proposes an answer that could help American to, to better prepare for the future, but there is a problem with his proposal. It requires politicians to suddenly tell the American people the truth about our economic condition, which would most certainly mean the end of their political careers, and at least in many cases. And some of you older folks may remember Jimmy Carter's message wearing his cardigan sweater back in 1978 suggested that we should keep our houses cold in the winter for the sake of uh, reducing the, na- the, uh, the, the oil consumption. Well, when Lawrence Kotlikoff joins me um, at about half past the hour, we want to ask him some of the following questions, all of the following questions and perhaps some more. How serious 
are America's financial problems? And what does he uh, propose to do to rectify them? What happens if the problems aren't fixed, especially what happens to people who are totally unaware uh, that they are coming upon us? And assuming that the problem is not fixed, which I think is, unfortunately, I believe is a fairly safe assumption, is there anything those of us who are aware of the problem can do to reduce the risk or at least reduce the pain that is likely to come our way uh, for those um, as we... Uh, compared to those who maybe keep their heads in the sand and don't really want to know or don't ask any questions about uh, about the future, what does our financial weakness reduce? Does it does our financial um, our financial weakness does it in any way, as President Eisenhower suggested, reduce our national security? I think it's worth noting that Eisenhower was the last president to really seriously and honestly reduce our deficit or and and balance the budget. He was the last president to have the gold reserves, the national gold reserves, audited independently. Uh, so we have a number of questions to ask Professor Kotlikoff, and, and I said, uh, as I said, Michael Oliver will be with us in just a, a couple of minutes from now. But right now, I would like to remind you of the Metals Investor Forum at the Rosewood Hotel, Georgia, in downtown Vancouver. I will be speaking there. And, I will be inviting Canada Zinc, uh, Corvus Gold, Genesis Metals, and New Range Gold Corp. Newsletter writers invite companies. They think uh, it's a good time for them to tell their stories there. Uh, I will be speaking, uh, I believe it's at 11.30 on Friday. Um, and I'm going to be speaking on what happens to gold in a petrodollar decline. Uh, I should mention it is on the 10th and the 11th. Uh, you can go to uh, jtaylormedia.com to sign up. It is a free. It's free to attend, but there are limited seats, and I'm told that about 95% full. So if you are in the area of Vancouver and you'd like to go, I'd certainly like to see you. Uh, if you listen to this show, uh, be sure to say hello to me. I'll be there in at the conference, a relatively small place. We'll certainly bump into you. Uh, at this uh, conference where maybe about 600 attendees. Uh, before we go to break, though, I would like to talk a little bit about what I want to talk about in Vancouver. Uh, some of the points that I hope to make, uh, since 1971, when Nixon removed gold from the international monetary system, the global monetary system has been effectively a fraudulent system held together by diplomacy, regime change, and military force. Given its superiority uh, militarily since World War II, America has been able to force the rest of the world to accept endless dollars created out of nothing. Uh, and it's used those dollars then to hand out goodies to American voters in exchange for their votes, to uh, pass legislation and arrange contracts to corporations who bribe our legislators, to expand the America's military empire into some 146 countries, where we are engaged in clandestine regime change in many instances, whenever those countries stray away from what we want them to do, primarily what I should say the powers behind the throne want them to do, and that means use dollars for trade. With smaller countries, the American military complex has been able to uh, get away with that kind of behavior, and and certainly uh, there's that reason to believe that our CIA, CIA has tried uh, clandestinely to change the Russian regime. It has obviously failed so far, and if anything, it seems as though Russia may be gaining strength, not losing it. China is so vast, I doubt anything like that is possible, um, a CIA overthrow, but um, certainly we have not 
left China alone. The United States is is really, really fighting hard to try to keep control of China's sea lanes. And uh, clearly, uh, we would rather not have China control the sea lanes. We want to control the sea lanes and trade primarily, I would guess, so that there so that trade is continued to be conducted in dollars. But now, um, China and Russia and some other nations like Iran and possibly. Uh, NATO, a NATO member Turkey, are starting to fight back with currency wars and the implementation of their own banking and trading infrastructure and to, and the use of yuan for trade as opposed to dollars to make the yuan more palatable for international trade countries like Russia and China and Iran have been building their gold reserves massively and now they're going to start trading oil for yuan uh, and with the oil uh, exchange in Shanghai, as well as the gold exchange in Shanghai, all in uh, denominated in yuan. Uh, the the table seems to be set for a move more and more away from the dollar uh, towards uh, other non-dollar trading, yuan trading, uh, and perhaps a yuan backed by gold. So some very interesting things are are happening now geopolitically that are coming at the same time that Lawrence Kotlikoff reminds us or suggests. Uh, that uh, that China and Russia are healthier financially than the United States. So I really want to know, you know, what impact this may have uh, on the gold markets. But more importantly, what should we as citizens do to um, to prepare for the difficulties that might lie ahead as a result of this? To the extent these, uh, to extent things are going to change, if the dollar uh, hegemony is finished or nearing its end, what impact will that have on the markets that we? that we Americans rely on. Uh, and so those and many more questions we'll be talking to uh, Professor Kotlikoff about uh, at about half past uh, the hour. But right now, we're going to take a commercial break. When we come back, um, we'll be talking to Michael Oliver. Well, Michael, uh, maybe, well, he normally doesn't talk about these geopolitical issues and uh, or any issues that really affect the markets. He just looks at the markets and lets the markets talk to him objectively. I think it's very important to realize that Michael's work, as much as anyone I know, is very objective. He doesn't allow his own feelings and preconceived notions, his own ideology, and Michael is a free market man for sure, if ever I've seen one. He doesn't allow those things to get in the way of what the markets are actually telling. Uh, you know, we can be right, but we can be wrong by 10 years, and that's, you know, that's as bad as being wrong uh, as you know, the timing is everything, as they say. And Michael is very helpful, at least uh, not from a short-term timing perspective. But you know, I want to play defense as an investor in gold mining shares and other companies. I want to know which way the major turns in the market are going. And Michael is very, very helpful for that. So um, he'll be with me right after the break. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project, located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me the most frequent guest on this show, on the show more often than any other single human being other than myself, uh, Michael Oliver. Thank you for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you, and I sh- want to always tell my listeners, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Michael is very kind. I think he offers a free sample of his work, so you can go there and request that. Uh, but uh, better than that, I think if you get a sample and you're, you're a serious investor, you you want to you most likely want to subscribe to his work. So, Michael, you know the S and P 500 from your weekend report. There was something in there that really caught my attention. Your quarterly momentum chart showed that four times since 2016, sometime it dips down to a plus five, but stops abruptly there. It never reaches. Uh, I guess it never reaches a plus four. Uh, the sinister side of me cries out, manipulation. How do you account for this continued defiance of gravity? I mean, it just seems like sooner or later that thing has to break, but what? how do you account for it, and what does it maybe tell our listeners what it means? There, when you look at momentum and look at price, you see two different vistas of a market, and, and uh, we oscillate price against various means, moving averages. And in the case of a three-quarter moving average, which is roughly equivalent to a 200-day line, We've noticed that for a year now, every time you open the quarter, first quarter, second, third, and fourth quarter of this year, you open and you, you, you quickly down to 5% over the three-quarter average. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, don't, you, might, you dip under 5, but you never get to 4. It's like mm-hmm. 4.7, 4.1, 4.5. It's really ridiculous. And then, then you just spend the rest of the quarter rallying, mm. uh, you know, 2, 3, 4%. Then you open the next quarter and you get a drop in the readings. Why? Because the three-quarter moving average jumps up. Why? Because we're in a rising market, the average rises. Okay, so again, measured against that rising mean, 
you drop down to that 5% level again, and you stop there. And so you can draw this big red line. I do it in my reports. Yeah. Yeah. It's a year wide, and it's, it's what you call a momentum structure. It is mm-hmm. nowhere apparent on a price chart. You look at a price chart, you can't find those four lows lining up anywhere. But they That's do have momentum. That's a structure if you break, you're going down. Uh-huh. This were a, a three-week average oscillator or something like that. It wouldn't necessarily mean that much. It could break and get a sell-off. But this is a quarterly momentum chart. That's a big floor. You break it, you're going to at least go down to the three-quarter average, which is another you know, four, 4% below 4%. So you, it's down in the low 2400s. So the number to touch, and, and, and I, I get specific only on this because it's, it's broadcast widely anyway. It's a well-known number that I've put out. In our normal reports, we also specify shorter-term trigger numbers, but I won't yes. get into those. But it's, the number is 2503.1. Yes. Now, that's right now, that's 80-some-odd points below you. So, well, that's a long way, but that's 3%. Mm-hmm. So if you ever touch 2503.1 during this quarter, you're going to blow out that entire floor. And I'm, my bet is you go down to the 2400 pretty rapidly. Now, it's late in the year, and going down to 2400, you still get a nice up year. Uh, there might be some support around that three-quarter average. I haven't seen it in a year and a half, by the way. It's a long time. So the return to the mean principle is, is in play here. Uh, but it puts you in a position that if that broke this year and got you down in that vicinity by the end of the year, and you open 2018 and you're playing around that 2400 level, you're starting to break annual stuff. In other words, a, a medium-sized guy falls over and hits the big guy. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's what I'm implying here. So we're very keen on anything that can precipitate a sell-off now and get us down that 3% to that 2503 level and trigger that quarterly momentum structure and get a, a, a real sell-off underway. Now, most people would consider, you know, if you get a 4 or 5% sell-off, that's a correction, big deal, right? Yeah. Well, for us it is because it puts the market in a position that is uh, extremely awkward when you get into next year in terms of breaking m- much larger momentum trend structures. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking at right now. We're not looking for any collapse this year, no crash. I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for a wobble that says, okay, legs are broken. This beast is going down, probably in phases. But the first thing we need is that, that uh, bit of a landslide. And there's some short-term things that are like 10 points below the market right now that if you hit, it could get you rolling in that direction. And uh, that's one of the, the key asset categories I also think that needs to contribute to the shift in investor sentiment away from stocks toward commodities. And I think mm-hmm. that shift is underway, but that would definitely help precipitate more uh, movement in that direction. Uh, you know, upset yeah. the stock folks a little bit and they, they go somewhere else. And uh, commodities, after all, if you, if you look at the Bloomberg Commodity Index, nobody notices this, but since June, there was a low in June. It's risen 11% since June, and that's that's the basket of commodities. Nobody's paying uh, attention. This week's high, it's it's two points. It traded up to 88. The high of the last couple years is 90. We're a couple points away from the multi-year highs, but nobody notices it. Uh, Despite the objective measurements, (laughs) you can can prove that something is doing well, but everybody's fixated on stocks, so we need a little shin kick there, and I think it'll move some money around. Well, I guess uh, nothing like a good slap upside the head uh, yeah. with those kind of corrections you're talking about. Again, people won't see it on a chart, on a price chart, but you're looking at it on your momentum mm-hmm. charts. And, and what you see is, is something that most people don't notice, that, uh, that momentum reading there. Uh, and I've seen it work. This is why you're on the show almost whenever I can get you, because 
uh, I've just seen it work. Uh, it's been very, very helpful to me, Michael. And, and uh, let's let's talk about the dollar. Um, I'm hearing a lot of people claim that the dollar has fallen about as much as it's likely to fall now. I think we've had enough mm-hmm. already. So mm-hmm. most people yeah. seem to be pretty pretty bullish on the dollar now. They think this is probably it in terms of the downside well, risk, but I don't uh, think you believe that. We don't. Uh, <laughs> admittedly, we th- the rally is justified. I mean, you, you drop from a 103.5 high uh, late last year, early this year on the dollar index down to 91. That's a 12.5 point drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of that occurred uh, from about April through below uh, a few months ago, several months ago. So much of that occurred mid-year. You've had since then a four-point rally. 91 to 95. Right now we're in the 94s. Uh, so you rally back about a third, something like that, and it's taken you several months to get that much rally. The argument for the dollar is usually fundamentally driven. Well, rates are going to go up here. Okay, well, I yeah. agree with that. Rates are going up. They've gone up. In fact, our 10-year note, uh, we usually focus on the 30-year bond, but let's look at the 10-year note. It's risen in yield since its low yield summer of 2016, nine-tenths of a percent. Ten-year mm-hmm. U.S. government bonds risen nine-tenths of a percent. Mm-hmm. The German Bund, competing with it, okay, has risen a half a percent. Mm-hmm. So we've gained, you know, almost twice as much yield as they have, or Italy or any other country in Europe, thanks to the ECB artificially yeah. keeping rates low. Uh, you would think that should help the dollar, right? Mm-hmm. That's the argument. We're, we're going to get higher rates here. Well, we've yeah. gotten higher rates, and yet the dollar's dropped. Uh, and besides, there are other factors in play in the Forex markets other than, than competitive interest rates. That argument is so obvious that everybody knows it. And sometimes that, yes, it's a truism that that impacts uh, the performance of one currency versus another, the varying rate structures and mm-hmm. the trends of those rates. Uh, but there are other factors in play. And I'm not a, we don't pretend to uh, define what those fundamentals are because there's too many of them. Yeah. You never know which one that might be a minor one on somebody's list that is actually yeah. more important now than some of the obvious ones. So we yeah. look at the technicals, and the technicals of the dollar broke down in April and May, especially in May, as it came down through 99, decisively breaking that level, and dropped eight more points rapidly, and has since spent, you know, spun its wheels for several months and gained all of four points. And it's a very wobbly rally. It's not a solid one. Uh, and I think it's just a counter-trend rally. And I, I have to ignore, though I respect many of the people who are holding the position, the dollar's going back up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the structures that we broke in the dollar index, if you saw a, a annual momentum oscillator at the dollar index, forget the price chart, mm-hmm. you would see something, it would, it would drop your jaw, and you would say, oh, that's broken. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we view rallies as counter-trend rallies. Michael, what sort of a what sort on the index? What sort of a downside uh, target do you see uh, in the let's say in the next year? For support was uh, and it'll change next year actually. uh, Yeah, get a little lower, but uh, it was eighty eight, and we Mm -hmm. got to ninety one, so we didn't get close enough. And frankly, Mm -hmm. there's a zone from about eighty four to eighty eight that we think is is a pocket where at that point you could get a nice you know rally that lasts several quarters maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we haven't gotten to a, a make sense level for us as far as a low that makes any sense. The 91 low makes zero sense to us at all, technically speaking. It is just in the middle of nowhere. And usually you'll find that when some market makes a lower high, if you're doing your homework, you can say, aha, now I can see why it did that. But I don't, I don't see the explanation for it and not in our work. And therefore, I, I tend to trust that that's not the low. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a futile rally. Uh, so I, I, 
I'm not, there, there is a large crowd. I agree. There was a lot of people talking about dollars going to turn back up and make new highs. And yeah. our, you know, we could be wrong, but I, I just think it's, it's too broken. Yeah. Well, you could be wrong, but I mean, I, I don't see it happen very often. Let's talk about the, so the T-bond, you mentioned the 10-year, the T-bond, uh, I mean, what, what's your target on that thing now? You're well, still very bearish on that, I'm right? looking for them to get in sync more with the, with the, the bunds, the German bunds, and uh-huh. the uh, Japanese uh, government bonds. Next year, they all have structures on their annual momentum charts that go back about 10 years. That are, uh, when you look at a price chart, you see this rising price or dropping yield and all of them. Uh, but when you look at a momentum chart, an annual momentum chart of, of those three markets, the 30-year bond here, or the 10-year note in Germany and in Japan, they have this clear floor. It's even bigger than the one we were talking about on, on the S&P on the quarterly momentum. They have it on annual momentum charts. Mm-hmm. In fact, the JGB wow. has the ugliest momentum structure I have ever seen on any market tending yeah. right below it. Uh, and the JGB trade futures, and the Bunds also have futures. Uh, they're actively traded. So we plot those. And, for instance, uh, we're about a point and a half away in the JGBs. And when I say a point and a half, they're trading above 150. Um, just below 150 next year, the 149s, I'm going to blow a 10-year floor. Hmm. Wow. Annual momentum at the zero line. And it was at the three-year moving average, which they've religiously held on to for years. And it just looks like when you blow that, it's the bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, you know, wow. it's, it's, it's coming down. Um, and, and so I, I tend to think it's a next year event, and therefore we're, we're wasting time in the, in the bonds and the bunds and the JGBs between now and the end of the year, just sort of spinning around here, confusing the situation. But the annual momentum structure on the government bonds is ugly. Mm. It looks, pardon me, I'll use the word inevitable, uh, the proximity of these breakage points on all these three markets is so close to current price levels that it's all you have to do is sneeze. And what I want to see is I want to see some unity. I don't just want the UST bonds to break their floor on momentum. I want to see the bonds and the JGBs do it too, and I think they will. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. sort of sitting on my hands on that, but I think that's a big event for next year. Boy, I, I, I guess it would be if we start to see a sudden surge in interest rates and, and the cost of borrowing money at a time when, when the government's uh, finances continue to spin out of control, then isn't that going to tempt the Fed to going to have to start printing more and more, probably remaining behind the curve, much as the 1970s? Perhaps, know, Michael, where they are not able to, you know, they know they got the rates are, the, the market's going to pull rates up whether yeah. the Fed likes it or not. Is that, right. is that what you right. believe? That's what I believe. Now, you can, you know, overnight stuff I don't care about. We've got yeah. 10 years and 30 years, and that is ultimately going to be controlled by market forces. And uh, even if to some extent they do exert an influence and have exerted an influence over those, those longer rates. But I think that influence is coming undone. That's what I'm seeing in the momentum structures. And I also see a food fight coming in the commodity sector where the, uh, the eating commodities, cattle and grains, uh, and the soft commodities, cocoa, sugar, coffee, are impending uh, explosive upside situations where I think it, it's likely to happen by early next year. And uh, I think it could be very sharp, very fast, shocking in effect, uh, and because that, that component of the commodity complex has not contributed so far. Uh, and, and when it comes into gear, their 2% goal of inflation is going to be achieved and then some. And then, then yeah. what are they, they going to do? Uh, right. If the stock market gets rattled because of that, because interest rates get rattled because of that, because of you know, rising commodity prices, uh, what are they going to do? Tighten? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, yeah, that's the no. conundrum no. they're going to be of up against. Not. There's no question. I mean, sooner or later, we knew this was going to have to happen. Yeah. But it seems what's, what's interesting to me is your plate tectonics make a lot of sense in what they're telling us. I mean, they, they seem to make sense. For example, if you're having rising interest rates, they're going up with, the, with inflationary pressures. But we're seeing this sort of the, the two major bull markets, the, the debt and the equity markets now coming to an end, seemingly, although the mm-hmm. S&P mm-hmm. isn't really cooperating yet, seemingly, although you pointed out we're very close to it. Uh, but then we're seeing the rise in inflation. And uh, so, where, Michael, with two minutes left here, what, where does that leave us with respect to gold then? I mean, gold was a leader for the commodity complex. It's sort of arm wrestling now, I think, is a term you like to use. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It is, where, where, where is gold headed in 2018? Well, the, the, the number I'm looking at above is, is, an, is now a price-based number. Why? Because my momentum work, annual momentum quarterly and so forth, it's all turned positive. Yeah. We've blown through every high of the last three or four years on those oscillators, and therefore they're positive. Now, if, if price were breaking out over multi-year highs and momentum weren't, I wouldn't trust price. But the, the reverse is happening. Momentum, annual momentum, is we've already taken out last year's oscillator high on a three-year average oscillator. And whereas price got within $20 of it, uh, you know, a few months ago, got the 13.58. Last year's high was 13.77. So we didn't take it out, but a momentum we already did. Then we backed up. Now, what there is on the price chart, I do give respect to now, because there is a massive, gradually declining line that goes back a couple of years on gold. You can plot it on weeklies or monthlies. I do it on mm-hmm. weekly through the closes. Uh, and basically says, if you close out a week at 1350, you're gone. Price mm-hmm. chart's breaking out of its space. And I would trust the price chart breakout because momentum has already done it. Mm-hmm. So that's an overhead number to look at. Uh, in fact, you don't need a momentum chart to see it. Now, below, I'm always looking around because people get anxious whenever you get a dip, but we yes. had a, a sell-off here recently. Uh, I don't, I, and I'm not rock solid on this, and I, I tend to think even if it breaks, it's probably a trap, but I, I don't want to see 1240s to 1230s. So far, low has been above 1260. Right now, we're trading 1277. So, and we've been grinding to a halt here the last few weeks, in fact. I think maybe the sell-off is trying to end here. Uh, I would watch the euro in that regard. The euro's had a sell-off. It looks to me like it's trying to put an end to the sell-off. And if it flips back up, and this is a logical area for it to do it, I think that'll help gold uh, reassert itself. Um, so gold is, is doing well. It's done better on a year-to-year basis for the last two years than has the commodity complex. So it's still ahead of that group, despite its recent back-off. And I think it'll maintain a, a leadership position among commodities. Uh, all right, we'll have to leave it go at that, Michael. Okay. Thank you so much for your insights, for your for your wonderful technical work, Thank which you. is you, such a blessing to us and our listeners. Um, we hope to have you back again next week if you're available. Thank you sure. so much for being with us. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. All right, folks, uh, we, we do have to go to commercial break, but don't go away because uh, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff is going to be with us. He has some really interesting observations uh, about the relative strength of um, the financial situation in the United States versus China and Russia. But uh, unlike many uh, economists, Lawrence, I think, actually has some positive suggestions. We want to hear what he has to say about uh, what the country should do and what you and I should do to try to protect ourselves against uh, what might be some rocky times ahead. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff. Uh, Dr. Kotlikoff is a professor of economics at Boston University. Uh, he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and uh, the Economic Society. Uh, that's a research associate uh, of the National Bureau of Economic Research and uh, president of Economic Security Planning, Inc. It's a company specializing in financial planning software. Uh, and he's the director of the Tax Analysis Center. And Professor Kotlikoff has a very impressive academic background, having uh, received his bachelor's degree uh, from uh, University of Pennsylvania, his doctorate from Harvard University, and he served on the faculties of um, economics uh, University of California, Yale University, and is also a consultant to the IMF, the World Bank, the Harvard Institute for International Development, as well as several other organizations. So we're very pleased to have uh, Dr. Kotlikoff with us. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just always uh, good to talk to you. And I might um, suggest to our listeners, uh, kotlikoff.net, I guess, is a, is a place they should go to to follow up on your work, right? And and you have so many, you've written so many things. There's a list of things that you've written uh, there on your on your website, and I noticed some of your new posts, which are really interesting, uh, were um, were critics of the tax reform go wrong. Uh, you, another article, uh, the surprisingly good Republican tax plan, uh, Lawrence Summers hatchet jobs on tax reform, and uh, Kevin Hassett. So lots of things to talk to you about, um, but I, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to have you talk about, you know, I want you to talk about what individuals can do to protect themselves, to enhance their wealth, 
in retirement, and I suppose uh, the earlier people start, the better. Uh, I also want to talk to you about an interview that you recently did with Sprott that caught my eye because it had you suggesting that America is in worse financial condition than Russia and China, and for that matter, compared to most advanced economies in the world. And I want you to delve into that and related issues, but perhaps we we talk first about um, your software called Maxify, which looks very interesting and very reasonably priced. I haven't haven't purchased it myself, but I'm very tempted to do so. I should have before we came on the show so I could talk more intelligently about it or ask you more intelligent questions, but I think it's pretty straightforward. Tell our listeners about Maxify and what it's intended to do. Uh, yeah, we have we marketed for ninety nine dollars at maxifyplanner.com. So it's M A X I F I, as in Maxi your finances, mm-hmm. uh, Maxify Planner. Uh, what it does is it figures out a game plan for you, uh, so that you can keep having a uh, uh, spending at a smooth level through time. It figures out how much you can spend every year. Uh, in today's dollars so that you can keep on spending it so that everybody has the same living standard in your household through time. So it mm-hmm. takes into account, you know, the fact that kids are leaving the household and that, you know, somebody might die uh, if they're much older, a much older spouse, for example, uh, before the other spouse. It takes into account economies of shared living, all the taxes in all the states and the federal government, mm-hmm. Medicare Part B premium is very comprehensive. And we've been working on it for like 34 years, like I said, about 24 years to get it right. It's extremely user-friendly. It's web-based. It kind of runs like TurboTax. And here's what and it says. Look, just tell us what you've got. We don't care what you spent on toothpaste or vacations last year, last five years. It's not relevant. You're spending the wrong amount for sure because it's too complicated for anybody to figure out. This program will figure it out using modern economics, uh, computer al- algorithms, and mm-hmm. we're going to show you here's what you get to spend every year so that you can have the same living standard. It takes into account your cash constraints because not everybody can have a perfectly smooth path if they're, you know, if they're paying off a mortgage or college debt or, or uh, tuition for their kids. But then it figures out automatically on its own how to raise that living standard for you. It does robo-optimization. So in the world of finance, you know, we we talk about something called smart beta, which is how to kind of uh, be clever about uh, finding assets that are are risky but are going to produce a higher return without too much um, uh, additional risk Uh because they're kind of – if if the market goes down, these other mar- these other assets do do better. Kind of they're negatively correlated. But there's something that's even better, which is called smart alpha, which is finding safe ways, perfectly safe ways to raise your living standards. So an example here is maximizing your Social Security benefits. Finding uh, in our software, uh, Maxify Planner, as part of its Mac optimization, figures out an entire game plan for how you should deal with Social Security. It also, and that's going to raise your lifetime Social Security benefits. It figures out how to lower your lifetime taxes by optimizing over when to take your retirement account money out, whether to annuitize it, whether to contribute more, whether to use, um, take your Roth money out first or second. All these are, you know, major issues. Mm-hmm. You can also um, look, use the software to figure out whether you want to downsize your home and by how much. Uh, when you should, ret- you know, when when do you really can you really afford to retire? 
should you move to Texas and lower your state income taxes if you live in Massachusetts, for example? Mm-hmm. Should you take a job that's in a different state where there's different taxes, different housing costs, wow. different salary, different 401k versus this job? You can do a side-by-side comparison and see which one's going to produce a higher living standard. Mm-hmm. That's how you decide whether or not to move. So, And this stuff can, can mean on a lifetime basis uh, – you know, I've been able to use our software to almost double somebody's living standard perfectly safely. And, and this sounds like hype. It sounds like, uh, you know, I'm selling some, some form of snake oil. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professor. Of, yeah, it does. I know. But I'm a professor of economics, and I'm the, the CEO or whatever, president of this small company. And uh, I'm one of the few presidents of any company in this country that doesn't get a, paid a penny for his from this company. I don't earn a penny on and haven't for 24 years from my company because I, uh, I just run it as a nonprofit. I try and keep the prices for our software as low as possible. Mm-hmm. We don't take any, we don't have any conflicts of interest with any financial and any financial industry, mm-hmm. um, uh, and company. And, uh, we don't try and sell anybody products or, or recommend any, any advisors. So, uh, I can say this as as if I'm hawking a uh, a charity because mm-hmm. from my perspective that's what it is. I'm trying just oh. to help people and and hire Americans. Uh, to, so this is really uh, Maxify Planner is in effect a money machine, a safe money machine, and I hope that everybody uh, plunks down the ninety nine bucks and raises their living standard because they're going to make yeah. much more money running this than they than the ninety nine bucks. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I mean, so I guess it, it, it will allow you to make choices to optimize if you want to optimize your income or your living standards. But living standards sometimes are sort of intangible. For example, you mentioned Texas. Mrs. Taylor and I live in New York City. We love New York City. We love the arts. We love uh, all the things that New York City has to offer, the, the you know, the, the intellectual things that are available here that would be maybe missing in some more rural areas. Of the country, so I, I guess you know it's still the choice is yours. We could certainly sell our home here in New York City and go buy something you know for a third the price that is uh, that is that is bigger or better or whatever. But do we want to do that? So I guess well, there's so, going so, to always so be those software, personal decisions. Yeah. The, those decisions are always going to be personal, but the software can help you uh, price out those decisions. You know, mm-hmm. you might say, well, look. If my living standard could be twice as high on all the dimensions apart from the uh, pleasantries of uh, living in New York City, if it could be high, high, more than twice as high, I'm going to move. Yeah. If, if it's going to be only a third higher, it's not worth it to, to us. Yeah, right. You can find okay. out exactly the, how much more your living standard would go up by just running this thing and saying, let, let me consider... Uh, you know, go online, figure out a home that you, and how much it would cost, what the property taxes would be. Stick that in. Pretend in a separate profile you're living in in uh, Tennessee or uh, and uh, or wherever, and uh, see how much more you get to spend. Because guess what? You could you may have a, have enough extra money to spend. You know, maybe uh, a fifth of the year uh, in Airbnbs in New York City, uh, enjoying <laughs> all the pleasantries but not the bad weather and um, not yeah. the crowds over Christmas all right well this is really interesting and I, I'm not I wasn't sure whether I should uh, get you to talk about this uh, early in our discussion today or at the end because it seems to me that 
what you're talking about are things that might be that are within our own control to some extent. What I want to ask you about next are things macroeconomic um, movements, yeah. things that take place that maybe as voters we have a tiny little say, maybe we don't. But um, you know, we, we really can't do too much about the bigger influences in life. You know, the things that happen, whether there's a tax, the tax bill gets passed or not, is, is sort of beyond us. We can vote for guys that want it if we want it. We can vote for people we think will, you know, will will be in line with our with our preferences. But I, I want to ask you about this this issue of uh, the American financial system because I know you've been harping about this for a number of years. You've been sounding the alarm bells about it. But, you know, one of the things, uh, Professor Kotlikoff, that people are going to say is, you know, I heard some people back in the 1990s warning about fiscal doom and if we don't balance the budget and if we don't start getting our house in order, blah, 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 blah. And here we are 30 years later and everything is swimmingly good, at least for people with upper income people anyway. Yeah, it's, um, you know, most uh Households, most workers haven't seen a pay raise in real dollars for, according to, uh, in terms of take-home pay, it's not any higher than it was in the late 1960s. Uh, that's wow. average take-home pay, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in, real, in today's dollars. So mm-hmm. we've had a lot of wage growth, but it's been targeted towards the, um, you know, the lucky uh, few at the top. And... So for most Americans are struggling, they're working crazy hours, uh, you know, both partners are working uh, in, in couples. And so this is um, uh, a country that's not growing uh, for the typical worker. It's not performing. And uh, in addition, we have a social security system that's uh, got reports in uh, table 6F, one of its latest trustees report that came out in July that it's got $34 trillion of debt. In other words, it's unfunded liabilities, $34 trillion, even including the couple trillion in the trust fund. The, the system's uh, uh, got all this hidden debt that uh, has been kept off the books for decades. Uh, that's massive compared to the $20 trillion in, in official debt. Uh, and the and the deficit in that system, the increase in the debt was $2 trillion over the last, just the last year. Uh, now, that's just part. You might say, well, maybe the rest of the fiscal system can bail out Social Security, but the rest of the fiscal system's in far worse shape. The overall fiscal picture is of a debt for our country, a true fiscal gap of $206 trillion. That's yeah. my best estimate. Now, that's uh, about 10 times the official debt, about 10 times GDP, and this is net debt. This is, if you look at all the spending that the government has projected to do, including servicing the official debt, the stuff that's put on the books, and you subtract out, and you value that in the present, just present value it, and then you subtract out the present value of all the future receipts, taxes that the government has projected to collect, uh-huh. the difference is $206 trillion now. Wow. Uh, and I'm not the only economist who's coming up with these numbers. Uh, Alan Auerbach at Berkeley is top top economist. Bill Gale at Brookings, um, they will give you numbers uh, uh, in this range as well. So this is about 10% of GDP on an ongoing basis. The the only country that I know uh, that comes close in terms of uh, fiscal gap this big, Russia's got about an 8% of GDP per permanent 8% of GDP problem. Um, the um, 
China may have, uh, you know, five, six percent of GDP. Uh, so there are a few countries that have, um, that are terribly, uh, ter- you know, that have just played this game to the hilt of putting obligations off the books. But we seem to be the masters of our children's demise. We seem to be at fiscal war with our children, at economic war. You know, uh, uh, it's not just uh, the fiscal problems. We're leaving uh, uh, extremely dangerous, uh, damaged climate to our children that uh, could, you know, physically matter matter dramatically to their lives. Uh, I'm at Boston University. I'm a, you know, uh, as you pointed out, um, we have one of the top physicists in the the world, perhaps the top physicist of, of all time here is Shelley Glashow. Uh, he's the the father of the uh, standard theory, it's, uh, the main theory of f- particle physics. Mm-hmm. I was having a conver- casual conversation with him about a month ago or so uh, about climate change. He tells me off the cuff that he believes that given the current path that the world's on, sea levels will be 100 feet higher in 2200. Now, Oof. that's... That's beyond our own lifetimes, but if we think about our grandchildren, they will be alive in 2200, or certainly our great-grandchildren. Yeah. So uh, that's from the, the world's most eminent scholar, you know, a physicist. Uh, uh, it doesn't, come, yeah. doesn't get better than Shelley Glashow when it comes to talking about these things. So we, we have to worry about our children uh, just because they look different from our own children. They may, you know come from, have a different religion, a different background, different mm-hmm. skin tone. It, it, we are all Americans, and if we don't take care of our children, we're not doing what, what's uh, socially responsible, what, what, what our job is, is as adults, and our first job is to take care of our kids. And that yes. means not just our own personal kids, but everybody's kids. Yes. And we're failing. Yes. Yes, I thank you for that. I think that's, that's absolutely right and inspiring. I think you're, I mean, who can argue with that? Uh, Dr. Kotlikoff. Um So you you make it sound as though Russia isn't that much better off, China not that much better off than we are. I guess your 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 numbers are I think were ten percent and eight percent or eight percent for Russia compared to our ten percent or something right. mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but somewhere I was reading that you were suggesting that we're worse off than almost everybody else, at least among the developed countries. Well, so, if you look at the developed well, countries, yeah, if you look at the European Union, they put out a fiscal gap uh, measure for every three years. Our country, our government has refused to do that, even though uh, something like 20 Nobel laureates and thousands of economists from every top university on down ha- have endorsed fiscal gap accounting. If you go to a, a website called www.theinformact.org, so it's T-H-E, I-N-F-O-R-M-A-C-T, theinformact.org. You'll see all the endorsements of a bill, that um, bipartisan bill that never got passed or hasn't been passed yet to require our government agencies to start doing fiscal gap accounting because what, we're, what they're uh-huh. doing is Enron-type accounting. They're yes. keeping almost all the bills off the books. Uh, you know, so your Social Security benefit obligations that uh, the government owes you, uh, and Medicare benefits, uh, all those things are not recorded as part of a, a debt that our kids are going to have to pay. For, pay, so we're we're just kind of uh, uh, driving in Los Angeles with a map of New York, you know, and we're going to end up driving right into the ocean. Uh, that's that's what's going on. So that's immoral. Uh, in addition to everything else we're doing, 
uh, in this um, in this war on our children, just just hiding from ourselves and hiding from our kids the truth of how we're treating them. Well, I, I did a fiscal gap analysis for Norway with a colleague, a Norwegian colleague, back in like '93, mm-hmm. and when it was presented to the government, they uh, took it seriously and they started something called a generational trust fund. It's now one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world, and it really emanated from that, from what I've been told from this study that uh, got a lot of attention because when I went to Norway to deliver the study, I was met at the airport by by reporters who immediately took me to the hospital. And I said, well, why do you want to take me to the hospital? I'm not feeling fine. They said, well, we want you to present this bill from your, you know, your study says there's a birth bill to the, the latest newborn Norwegian. So we go to the uh. hospital, we find a baby is about, a, a, you know, a couple hours old, and they photographed me taking a, handing this bill to this child and at that time, Norway was basically outspending its uh, oil reserves. So they had a huge surplus, but uh, they weren't taking into account the fact that uh, at the rate of spending, they were going to run out of oil, and then the kids were going to be left, future children were going to be left holding the bag. So they decided, let's take some of this oil wealth, all the, some of the revenues, and put it into a trust fund, invest it abroad, uh, not in Norway, not in some politicians' brothers' you know, enterprise, well, and let's make so, sure the kids have something. So, Dr. Kotlikoff, with just a few minutes left, is this is this what you think? This is where we need to start. We need to start to, the politicians need to start being honest with the American people. I can't, I can't help but forget Jimmy Carter when he tried to be honest with his, with his cardigan sweater many decades ago, uh, suggesting that we keep our, our, our homes not as, as warm as they used to be so that we wouldn't consume so much oil. Didn't serve him very well politically. Um, what's well, the chances Carter of, was, of, huh? <laughs> yeah you know, I think Carter was um, uh, he's a lovely guy he's you know probably the best ex-president we, he should have started out as the ex as an ex-president because he wasn't really competent as a president I live I'm old enough to have remembered Carter I don't think much uh, of Reagan who followed uh, we've had a series of pretty bad presidents you know who have ignored uh, posterity uh, President Obama was great in many respects, but uh, but has left you know never dealt with these problems. President Clinton never dealt with these problems. Uh, they you know it just it, finding real leadership at the top is um, no picnic. Uh, yeah. So uh, I've yeah I've actually run for president twice. The last time as a writing candidate, and the press had no interest because I didn't have any real money even though I was one of five people that were legally eligible to be become president on election day. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, that's very interesting. Well, I think, you know, you're, you're voicing some concerns that I, I, I really appreciate you doing so. Um, just with a couple of minutes left here, uh, you, you mentioned something that you seem to be favorably uh, disposed to uh, uh, President Trump's tax plan, which is kind of surprising. Uh, could you take just a couple of minutes and tell us what you like about it? And and I don't think it's going to be passed, though, is it? Well, we'll have to see. The uh, it's getting a lot of bad press. I'm. Uh, I think President Trump is. Uh, uh, is a disgrace to himself, his family, and his and his country. And um, I, I would hope he would resign. Uh, uh, but he, I don't think he has, a, has the, the manners to do so. No. Uh, and he's a disgrace on a daily basis. So I'm in no way a Trump supporter, nor was, nor am I a Hillary Clinton supporter. As I said I, a moment ago, I, I ran against both these mm-hmm. folks, but didn't get anywhere. The, um, 
But economics is not about politics. We have when it comes when I put on my economics hat, I forget politics. I just analyze uh, policies uh, the way a good economist would do that impartially. And this bill has uh, a lot of things going on, but on balance, it's going to help grow the economy, and it's actually, uh, I think, distributionally relatively fair. It's not going to change the distribution of um, of spending, which is the ultimate. Um, bottom line across uh, people, you know, much at all. So it's about as, as fair as the current system if you do the analysis right. The analysis going down, being done in Washington is totally screwed up, uh, and I'll be posting another uh, column about the distributional effects of this plan at Kotlikoff.net, but pe- people can read uh, what I've written already about the growth impacts. Now, it all sounds like it's coming from somebody who's a pro-Republican, uh, who's rah-rah on uh, cutting taxes and getting more revenue. But this is one of the few areas, that the business tax reform is one of the few areas where you can actually get a, a good supply-side response. Just cutting personal taxes per se is not going to grow the economy. It's going to do mm-hmm. the, the opposite right. in the models that we're running. The, um, and the other thing about this plan is it started with actually, uh, the business part of the plan was actually developed by a Democrat, and mm-hmm. so, so some aspects of this reform are neither Republican or Democrat at all of this particular proposal. And it didn't come from Trump. It's basically come, came from some good people at the House Ways and Means Committee who actually know something about taxes no. and, thought, and were very thoughtful about what to do. And it's gotten worse through time compared to where it was like a year and a half ago, but it's still worth doing in its all current right. form. All right, we're, we're going to have to leave a go at that, uh, Professor Kotlikoff. You, you have some wonderful ideas, uh, inspirational ideas even. I want to thank you very much for spending your valuable time um, sharing those with our listeners, and I hope we can do it again sometime. I really enjoyed this. Well, my so. pleasure, really. Anytime. I talk to you every week if you'd like. The, uh, I enjoy the conversations. And Kotlikoff.net, it lists all the software. We have a whole bunch of different software programs for people getting divorced or just interested in Social Security, but also... Uh, all, right. all my columns are there, kotlikoff.net. Absolutely. Go there, folks, kotlikoff.net. Well, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, Jerry Robinson will be with me, uh, and we'll also have the President and CEO of Bonterra Resources. Uh, until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.